Okay, so today I'm going to talk about Thomas Decker's play, The Shoemaker's Holiday. So, so far this term I've talked about two tragedies, the Spanish tragedy and Arden of Faversham. And I think for quite a number of reasons, maybe, we tend to focus on tragedies when we think about early modern theatre. It's a very attractive idea that theatre was vying for audience share with very bloody entertainment like public executions and animal baiting and stuff. And it's also, I mean, it is evidently the case that the amphitheatre playhouses we get on the south bank of the Thames in the 1580s, from the 1580s onwards, are designed uh, on the, the they're, they're modelled on the design of animal baiting arenas quite late into our period, so quite late in the uh, well, into the 17th century, we get a theatre called The Hope on Bankside, The Hope on Bankside, which is designed specifically to alternate animal baiting and theatre, kind of Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, or whatever. So that's quite an attractive idea to us, that um, judicial spectacles, I talked a little bit about that in relation to the Spanish tragedy, judicial spectacles like execution, um, the idea that traitors' heads would have been on... Uh, the one bridge across London that people would have passed when they went to the theatre. All those kinds of things um, seem to ally tragedy with a sort of violent world and a spectacularly <coughs> violent world. There's also, of course, a residual idea that tragedies are more important than comedies. Tragedies last longer. Uh, they are more profound. There are lots of problems with that as an assumption, um, but I think it has made us neglect uh, comedy of this period. It's as if we've become rather like the player in Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. He describes their repertoire. We are more of the love, blood and rhetoric school, he says. We can do you blood and love without the rhetoric. We can, we can do you blood and rhetoric without the love. We can do you all three concurrent or consecutive. But we can't give you love and rhetoric without the blood. Blood is compulsory. They're all blood, you see. Blood is compulsory. They're all blood, you see. Uh, it's a great idea and it's a great conceit um, and it's got a certain amount of truth in it, but today I'm going to talk about a play which isn't about blood at all, or it's certainly not about spilling blood. Uh, it may be about uh, when it uses the word blood, which it does uh, a number of times, it means uh, birth, breeding, the blood, uh, whether you're, what, what status, what class your blood is. And so it is going to harp on the same string that we've had already about class and status. But Thomas Decker's Shoemaker's Holiday, written for the Admiral's Men in 1599, might seem to present itself as an antidote to a general diet of gore. It's an absolute feel-good comedy in which the Lord Mayor's daughter marries the nephew of an earl, despite the fact that both their families are opposed to it. And it's a rags-to-riches fable in which a shoemaker becomes fabulously rich and the Lord Mayor of London. It's a play which ends with the king himself eating a pancake breakfast on Shrove Tuesday with honest, decent, working shoemakers of London. So along romantic, financial and social axes then, this play seems to exemplify a sort of fantastical, idealising form of comedy which is shot through with quite recognisable local detail a play which translates chivalric norms into the fellowship of the shoemakers in a London where the streets do seem really to be paved with gold. 
So what I want to try and do in this lecture is to outline some of the ways in which this works, in which the comedy is idealising and is able um, to sort out and smooth out irregularities and sort of ideological fractures in its own worldview. So some of the ways in which that does work, but also some of the ways in which it doesn't. There are ways in which Decker's willful optimism keeps stubbing its toe onto more intransigent obstacles. And in the course of that, I'm going to try and pick up some questions from the previous lectures, firstly about dramatic constructions of identity, but also to try and think more about the historical and cultural factors behind popular dramatic appeal. I guess the question I'm interested in more than, not necessarily more than any, but one question I am interested in is why did they like this stuff? We assume that they liked it. Why, why did they like it? So The Shoemaker's Holiday is set in London in an underdefined but probably 15th century past. They're the dates of the real historical figure, Simon Eyre. Simon Eyre is the, uh, in some ways the lead character in The Shoemaker's Holiday. Although in history he's actually a draper, not a shoemaker. And Simon Eyre became Lord Mayor of London in 1445. Simon Eyre is a kind of Dick Whittington type figure. Dick Whittington is a story from, um, it's a medieval story, but it becomes very popular in the Elizabethan period. It's just exactly the kind of um, uh, country boy come to London, made good sort of fable that, the, uh, that Londoners enjoy. The romance plot of The Shoemaker's Holiday is given us by Rose and Lacey. Rose is the daughter of the London Lord Mayor, Sir Roger Oakley. Lacey is the nephew of the Earl of Lincoln. So one of the uh, sources of conflict in the play is between the city and the court, the Lord Mayor and the Earl, and between the kind of middle-ranking um, civic hierarchy of the Alderman and the Lord Mayor on the one hand, and the aristocratic, uh, based on birth, ranking of the court on the other. Interestingly, neither the Earl nor the Lord Mayor wants the marriage to go ahead. Okay, they both think that the, other, that the chosen partner is unsatisfactory. The Lord Mayor thinks that the aristocracy are a waste of time and a waste of money, uh, and that Lacey will just, spend, will just be a spendthrift, and there are ways in which Lacey is characterised as a spendthrift, um, particularly has an eye for extremely uh, exotic clothes. Uh, the, the Earl doesn't want Lacey to marry the Lord Mayor's daughter because he thinks she's too ignoble for him. So the two father figures, uh, in fact it's Lacey's uncle, but they're obviously kind of patriarchal figures, the two father figures conspire to send Lacey off to enlist in the army, which is just off to France to fight a war. Instead of doing this, though, Lacey uh, dodges the, the draft go to war and dresses as a Dutch shoemaker called Hans, as you do. He ha he's very good at a totally incomprehensible accent and at singing and pretending to be drunk all the time, which is quite clearly what Dutch people do, particularly in plays. And instead of going off to France to fight, he stays in London working for Simon Eyre, the ambitious shoemaker. Before too long, Rose realises that Hans is Lacey, and the pair plot and have a secret marriage. 
Meanwhile, Lacey, as Hans, meets a Dutch merchant. He seems to be a real Dutchman, as far as we can tell, but has a similarly incomprehensible accent, and so, I mean, for all intents and purposes, another Englishman pretending to be foreign, but in the plot, he is really Dutch. The Dutch merchant wants to sell his cargo, and for some reason, which the play never makes clear, he wants to sell it at an absolute knockdown price. Hans persuades Simon Eyre to buy it, and Eyre makes a huge fortune on the proceeds. He lurches rapidly through the municipal ranks to become Lord Mayor of London himself. Parallel with Hans or Lacey and Rose getting together, we have another couple, Eyre's daughter Jane, whose new husband Rafe has gone off to war. Jane is persuaded that Rafe has been killed in the war and agrees reluctantly to remarry a gentleman called Hamon, who has been trying to seduce her. Fortunately, Rafe comes back from the war in the nick of time to prevent the marriage, and all are reconciled in the final festive breakfast. So we can perhaps see in this account a number of features, uh, some of which have already come up in previous lectures. Like both the Spanish tragedy and Arden of Faversham, The Shoemaker's Holiday is preoccupied with social rank and status, with hierarchies and gradations. And it's really interesting to think about that as a theme which comedy and tragedy absolutely share. Like Arden of Faversham, the play dramatises social movement, social upheaval, social transformation... And those transformations can take place through wealth, as in the case of Simon Eyre, through marriage, as in the case of Rose marrying into an earldom, and in the final scene, through kingly intervention. When the king hears that the Earl of Lincoln cannot be reconciled to the marriage of Lacey and Rose, he, the king, knights Lacey, gives him back the honour he forfeited by not going to France, and thus ennobles Rose as his wife. So the king says, if you don't like it, I'll sort that out. Kneel down, arise, uh, Sir, um, arise Sir Roland. In Arden of Faversham, of course, social movement was a source of friction and anxiety. In The Shoemaker's Holiday, there's an attempt to smooth away all such anxieties in a cloud of historical fantasy and make-believe. But in doing that, I guess, the play also implies that it's only in such an unreal world that the considerations of rank and birth can be cast aside. So it kind of um, ironically reinforces their importance by making a world in which they ultimately don't matter such an unbelievable world. In fact, I think it's the play's manipulation of romance and realism, so its manipulation of romance and realism, which is probably its most significant aesthetic and ideological device. So you, you know about romances, or certainly you're getting to know about them. I mean, you know about them from uh, medieval stuff, and you maybe know about them from the Fairy Queen. Like a medieval romance, then, The Shoemaker's Holiday involves characters who disguise their true identities and undertake penitential spells of work. Like a modern version of romance, it sees serial blocking figures. So blocking figures uh, are a comic device which come from 
new comedy, capital N, capital C. So new comedy is a kind of uh, comedy associated with Plautus and Terence. And new comedy is very influential on uh, Elizabethan, Jacobean and Restoration comedy. And one of its features is a comedy, it's a comedy based on love in which blocking figures, people who want to stop love matches, have to be somehow circumvented or defeated. And we can see quite clearly that in the new comic structure of the Shoemaker's Holiday, the blocking figures are the parental figures, um, uh, the Lord Mayor and the Earl. Like that story of Dick Whittington, the Shoemaker's Holiday has a fairy tale aspect in which almost unimaginable riches result from luck or chance rather than from inheritance or hard work. The play ends on Shrove Tuesday, aligning its plot with festival structures in early modern England. And if you're interested at all in Bakhtin and the grotesque and those ideas about what carnival is for and how carnival subverts or contains uh, order, uh, this is a really interesting play to think, to think about. So Shrove Tuesday is a time of license and topsy-turvydom, uh, preserved, I guess, in modern culture in rituals like Mardi Gras. If you look at the title page of the first printed edition, you'll see it's strongly associated with another festival, licensed topsy-turvy time, that of New Year. Um, the title page tells us that uh, the play is performed before the royal family at New Year. Uh, as it was acted before the Queen's Most Excellent Majesty on New Year's Day uh, at night. So New Year was a much more important festival, in fact, than Christmas uh, in the early modern uh, period, and New Year is the time most frequently when acting companies go to court to play either new plays or popular plays from the previous season. So that's all ways in which the play is about make-believe. It's a kind of... It's, it's romance, it's fantasy, it's unreal... But on the other hand, we do have nods towards realism. These include a realism or a recognisability of setting. Like the theatre in which it is performed, the Shoemaker's Holiday, the Shoemaker's Holiday is set in London. And it uses, although not quite so much as the later city comedies we might think this play inaugurates, it uses real city landmarks and other specific local details. I'm going to talk more about the play's relation to city comedy in a minute. The characters, or at least some of them, are ordinary working men, practised with their tools and their trade, and their specific guild-protected skills. Although, in the honorific description of shoemaking as, quote, the gentle craft, uh, Decker's play is in part based on a prose um, a story about how great shoemakers are. That's um, a story by Thomas Deloney called The Gentle Craft. And the idea that shoemaking is the gentle craft has associations with high status, gentle as in gentleman. I guess in that way, uh, real um, messy, kind of smelly leather work is also idealised uh, in this phrase, the gentle craft. We also have some quite topical events from contemporary London, albeit disguised into forms permissible in comedy. In particular, perhaps, the role of Hans, Lacey's disguised Dutch shoemaker, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. 
And even the war from which Lacey goes AWOL and to which Jane's husband, the shoemaker Rafe, goes, does have real flesh and blood consequences. Rafe is not, in fact, among the missing, although it seems for a time that he is. And there is some real pathos and pain in Jane's parting from him uh, and her anxieties about his safety. But when Rafe comes back, he's lost a leg. It's kind of, kind of important for a shoemaker who's so kind of into the lower body and feet in particular uh, to have lost a leg. That seems quite important. Uh, and there are signs there in, in, in that return that there are some costs, even in the festive world, that can't be ignored. And maybe that's a sideswipe at Lacey, who has kept himself safe uh, at home in London through disguising himself as a Dutchman rather than going to fight. The king's last words are to suggest that their revels, the shoemaker's holiday itself, is really just a short respite from ongoing hardships. I mean, that's crucial, isn't it, to carnival ideas, that you know, carnival is powerful because it's very limited in time, uh, and after it's over you go back to a pretty grim uh, world uh, w without much light or much food or much sense of, of uh, celebration. So the king's last words suggest that the shoemaker's holiday is really just a short respite, a holiday from ongoing hardships. Come lords a while, let's revel it at home. When all our sports and banquetings are done, wars must right wrongs which Frenchmen have begun. So the end of the play is very conscious that the ongoing war uh, in the background uh, can't be uh, pushed out. You might want to compare that nod to the military in the closing lines of another play of 1599, which uh, kind of tries to avoid the fact that there's a war going on but can't quite fully manage it, uh, much ado about nothing. So let's try and contextualise the play a bit to try and understand why it employs this mixture of the real and the make-believe, why it's so poised between romance and realism. I think it is significant that this world in which almost all can be set to rights is a world in the past. It's a world of the 15th century, not the late 16th. And the past is the location of many cultural products of the 1590s, from Spencer's epic poem, The Fairy Queen, to Shakespeare's history plays. Many critics of the culture of the 1590s have diagnosed a kind of cultural paralysis in which the combination of the ageing Elizabeth in her late 60s by the end of the century and famously without an heir, without a successor, so a co combination of the ageing queen and a kind of general fin de siècle 1590sism, uh, the kind of malaise, cultural malaise maybe we get, we think we get at the end of every century, which combined together meant a culture unable to imagine the future and one which instead turned to the past. A spate of newspaper commentators on our most recent Booker shortlist will probably make us believe we're in a similar world of historical fiction now. In fact, the world in which the play is performed, the London of 1599, is far from golden and optimistic. That idea of Elizabeth, the golden age, is a, is a much later uh, idealisation of the Elizabethan period. It didn't seem very golden at the time. 
Concern about the succession after Elizabeth's death was a suppressed but present concern, just as a kind of disillusion with the dying generation of Elizabeth and her great counsellors and statesmen spread through new generations of grammar school educated courtiers, men who had no hope of preferment uh, or, or office. They're the kind of people who give us malcontents in the drama of this period. The government seemed corrupt and nepotistic and inbred. The late 1590s, the genre of the late 1590s in poetry is satire. Joseph Hall, John Davis, John Marston, John Donne are all writing bitter, snarling works about the state of morality. Okay? And even if they're not directing that di um, absolutely at the Queen, there isn't sort of political satire in that way. Uh, there's a satire about manners and, um, and the mood of the times. There were also um, uh, sort of physical uh, deprivations. A sequence of failed harvests during the 1590s meant extremely high food prices and shortages in London. London was a city which had grown much too big for the stretched agricultural infrastructure at the end of the 16th century to feed. So it was a kind of impossibility, London. It was always toppling on the edge of uh, almost a famine. Food prices, if you want the figures, food, food prices rise by 40% in the 1590s. Wages rise by less than 10%. Apprentices in London, like those people in Simon Eyre's workshop, were always threatening to riot and the London authorities often instigated curfews to preempt dangerous congregations of disaffected youths. Added to this were ongoing security alerts, the threat of invasions, ongoing military commitments in the Low Countries, and most particularly the war in Ireland. The muster of soldiers in the Shoemaker's Holiday is about a war in France, just like a more famous contemporary play, again of the same year, 1599, also dealing with French battles, Shakespeare's Henry V, which gives us a miraculous victory of the underdog English over the French at Agincourt. Henry V is another feel-good play, I think, of this, uh, of this year, of, of this period, and quite an interesting one to put alongside The Shoemaker's Holiday. But the military operation most... But Sorry, the military operation most in the mind of both plays' audiences, both Henry V and the Shoemaker's Holiday, would have been that of Ireland. Elizabethan attempts to quell what the English called the Irish Rebellion reached a pitch in 1599 with large numbers of men called up to serve in the army and a huge, straggling supply line draining everything from horses to cloth to biscuits away from the hungry capital to supply soldiers in Ireland. In 1599, Elizabeth, so in 1599, the year of the play, Elizabeth appoints her gallant favourite, the Earl of Essex, to lead a new push in the Irish campaign. And Essex leaves London, taking with him 12,000 mustered troops. Okay, so 12,000 Londoners called up uh, to go to Ireland. London seems to have been weary of a war against committed guerrilla fighters who enjoyed widespread popular support at home. And the conflict in Elizabethan Ireland 
is a conflict whose bitterness, moral pointlessness and seeming unwinnableness is aptly summed up by one modern historian who calls Elizabethan wars in Ireland England's Vietnam. In this disillusioned state, Londoners agitated in particular against immigrants, immigrants, uh, foreign immigrants. Most people in London were immigrants, as in that they were people who had come to London. They were not born in London. Uh, London grows not through a very high birth rate, but through huge internal migration from everywhere else uh, in the country. And in that, it's like... um, uh, it's like a huge city in the developing world now. It's a, it's, a, it's a certain economic stage which pulls people in, huge numbers of people in uh, from all the surrounding countryside. Uh, so it, it, it grows largely through internal migration, but also through migration from abroad. And migrants from abroad are, are largely French and Dutch Protestants, some of whom are refugees from European wars of religion, And others are what we would call economic migrants, people with uh, artisan skills, including shoemaking, with which they could come and make a living. London's guilds, the companies organised around particular crafts and trades, step into full protectionist mode in the 1590s. They're always trying to look out for native uh, trade interests against immigrant ones. Complaints to the Privy Council by the Shoemakers Guild uh, included complaints about the quality of goods made by immigrants, but also fears that they sold their wares at a lower price than native workers. And there were also riots by English shoemakers against alien workers during the 1590s. So the idea of... um, uh, foreign workers, migrant workers in London uh, is not just a, a kind of matter of a funny accent as it is in the play, but it's actually quite a hot, a kind of political hot potato at the time. We can see then more generally how this gloomy backdrop has been transmuted for the play. The reality of 1599 London has been photoshopped into something brighter and more amenable to comic resolution. We do still have a war, but it's in the background. Decker gives us foreigners in London, foreign workers in London, but one of them is welcomed into the native workforce, unlike all those real-life contemporaries who are rejected and and, um, denigrated, and actually rewards the favour by turning out to be English after all. It's just ultimate fantasy, isn't it, about immigrants, that they turn out to be very nice, uh, and then, but they're actually English. And the other of the foreigners in London is a sort of naive sugar daddy who brings prosperity to the native Simon Eyre, rather than, as anti-immigrant rhetoric feared, taking prosperity away from the English. So Decker gives us a kind of recognisable, topical, real situation, but drains it of any kind of uh, problematic, any of its real problematic resonances. We do have social hierarchies in the play world of The Shoemaker's Holiday, as in 1599 London, but in the play, they can be scaled by a redoubtable and lucky self-made man. The play has plenty of money and plenty to eat. Even the banquet with which the play ends must have resonated in its depiction of unfamiliar munificence and plenty. Even in the unprecedented mercantile advancement of early modern London, everyone in the audience must have known that in real life, shoemakers or cordwainers did not get to be mayor. 
not least because they were not part of the major guild structure, which provided the civic hierarchy. So Eyre's rise is so self-evidently fanciful and unreal that it doesn't actually, I think, subvert ideas of order or even particularly encourage aspiration in its audiences. The play gives us a vicarious fantasy of self-fulfilment and riches, but I think it's a fantasy which doesn't actually challenge the status quo. Models of how early modern culture works have tended to coalesce around theories of containment on the one hand, containment on the one hand, and subversion on the other. The Shoemaker's Holiday would, I think, almost certainly come into the containment category as a play that attempts to neutralise rather than mobilise contemporary discontents. This is a holiday from real life rather than an alternative to it. It's a sanctioned place of licence rather than an unofficial strike. The play begins, indeed, with a prologue to the Queen from the play's court performance, and it's a prologue which could hardly be more obsequious. Grant, bright mirror of true chastity, from those life-breathing stars, your sun-like eyes, one gracious smile, for your celestial breath, Elizabeth apparently had very bad breath, but here she has celestial breath, for your celestial breath must send us life or sentence us to death. It's a really good example of how the, the idealised image of Elizabeth uh, in uh, circulating in the culture of the 1590s bears no relation whatsoever to um, uh, the, 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 real, uh, the real person. And it's only actually uh, when we hear reports from ambassadors and people who are not uh, foreign ambassadors who are not totally dependent on the Queen for patronage that we hear something about how she really looks uh, and really presents herself. So the play begins with an idealising prologue to the Queen and ends with an idealised representation of fellowship in its fairy tale king. So in this light, the feel-good factor in, in The Shoemaker's Holiday is rather like Busby Berkeley musicals of the Depression era in 1930s Hollywood. It's all glamour and froth and escapism. Or, for a more recent example... Last weekend's New York Times review of Sorority Wars, which sounds terrible. Sorority Wars, a new movie. Sorority Wars is simple escapist entertainment, says the headline, adding, if you want to get away from everything, and I mean everything from the Afghan war to the price of skim milk, I don't know if that's of particular concern to Americans at the moment, uh, Sorority Wars is your ticket. Perhaps then the shoemaker's holiday attracted those who wanted to get away from everything in 1599, everything from the Irish war to the price of wheat. But simple escapist entertainment is never actually all that simple, I think. Decker's own promise in his dedicatory epistle, nothing is proposed but mirth, nothing is proposed but mirth, seems close to one of those assertions that begs more questions than it answers. I've already tried to suggest some of the ways in which the real world won't be entirely airbrushed out of this vision of contented shoemakers and interclass romantic bliss. And I want to just elaborate on this for a minute by thinking about the way the play anticipates a coming theatrical fashion. 
Most analyses of the genre known as city or citizen comedy, city or citizen comedy, a theatrical fashion of the early years of the 17th century popularised by Marston, Decker and Middleton in plays like A Chaste Made in Cheapside and Westwood Ho. Most of those analyses have seen Shoemaker's Holiday from 1599 as the origin of that genre, the first city comedy. City comedies are typically set in contemporary London, a world recognisable for its immediate geographical and cultural resonance for audiences. And they are populated by a series of stock characters, chaste and virtuous young maidens, courtesans, foreigners with funny voices, dissipated old aristocrats, respectable patriarchs, prodigal sons. Typically, city comedies stress the energy and drive of the merchant classes. Okay, so the merchant classes are the centre of city comedy. Uh, One of the ways in which you might want to uh, distinguish it if, if you've got a model of comedy in your mind, maybe which comes from Shakespeare. Shakespeare uh, is a much more um, uh, is a much more aspirant writer uh, than these writers of city comedy, in that he's always writing about aristocratic people and working people in Shakespeare are a source of humour rather than uh, generating humour themselves. They're like Dogbury and Verges in Much Ado About Nothing. They're stupid and we laugh at them, we don't laugh with them. Decker's Decker's play, I think, encourages us to laugh with ordinary people, uh, as does, to some extent, the city comedy it uh, anticipates. City comedies, though, take a highly cynical and satirical look at the preoccupations of sex and money that are seen as engines of city life, a city in which everything is commodified. Middleton's uh, play, A Chaste Made in Cheapside, uses a brilliant trope of meat uh, to, uh, to, to sort of embody this. It shows how animalistic the city is, how bodies and food and consumerism all combine in a depiction of a world ruled by appetite and license. I'm going to look at a version of city comedy in fifth week when I'm going to talk about Middleton's Mad World, My Masters. Now, we might think that if The Shoemaker's Holiday is a city comedy, it's a relatively benign one. Commerce and commodification are important, but they are romanticised. Airs windfall from the Dutch merchant is an impossible bonanza. It is literally like winning uh, the lottery. And it's interesting that in the play, it's women who are associated with conspicuous consumption. In particular, the sequence with Marjorie Eyre, Simon Eyre's wife, which I'll talk about in a minute. So women uh, are associated with conspicuous consumption in The Shoemaker's Holiday, but they are not themselves consumed in the same animalistic way established by later city comedies. That's to say, women go shopping rather than are themselves bought in The Shoemaker's Holiday. Even Jane, harassed by her unwelcome gentleman, suitor Hammond, is not trapped into a financial marriage, as women tend to be in the later manifestations of the genre. But we might see Marjorie Eyre, Simon's wife, as the locus of some of the play's unresolved anxieties about Eyre's advancement and his new spending power. The flip side of consumerist London is deflected onto her, and of course that's a stereotype which... um, 
with which in some ways we still live, that women, uh, that it's women who are, are responsible for the purchase of luxury goods and too much shopping and maxing out credit cards and all those kinds of things. They're stereotypes that we still live with and they're a stereotype which operates right at the beginning of uh, English consumer culture uh, in the 16th century. When Eyre himself dresses as an alderman deceptively in order to impress the Dutch merchant, but proleptically for his amazing rise in the play, so when he dresses as an alderman, he's not in fact identified with negative aspects of consumerism, although when he serves wine at the final banquet rather than beer, which is a kind of nicely observed piece of social aspiration, the shoemakers are very outraged by, by this. But just as Alice Arden in Arden of Faversham represented something of the anxieties about uh, Protestant companionate marriage, so too, I think, Marjorie Eyre uh, suggests some of the anxieties about um, uh, consumerism and the conflictual social world of early modern London. There are some great scenes of consumption in the play, and they particularly uh, circle around Marjorie, what Marjorie is buying. And there's a great scene where she's trying to get a whole wardrobe of new clothes, uh, including new uh, shoes, not the kind of shoes that her husband's workshop makes, but really kind of high-class, uh, high-fashion shoes. Uh, a pair of shoes made, cor- made with, a, with cork and a wooden heel. Uh, and then she asks uh, her servant, Art thou acquainted with a farthingale maker or a French hood maker? I must enlarge my bum. This is obviously important for high status. Um, saying, does my bum look big in this, would be just great in the um, Elizabethan period. I mean, you really got there. Ha ha, how should I look in a hood, I wonder? Um, and so the wife is trying to, uh, Marjorie is trying to find uh, a whole lot of new commodities that she's not used to, uh, a periwig, uh, a fan, all kinds of things that uh, represent her new status, but that she hasn't bought before. <coughs> There's something quite interesting in, in that scene, in the dissonance between Marjorie's uh, aspirational consumerism and the way that her servants actually uh, puncture that bubble and keep reminding her of the person uh, she really is. But one of the things that's interesting about the passage and interesting about the representation of Marjorie uh, throughout uh, is the way she's represented in the text of the play. So I've been trying to suggest uh, implicitly in the other lectures and by putting the title pages of the early printed editions on the handouts that having a look at not necessarily reading in total, but having a look at how plays are printed can give you a lot of uh, insight into their preoccupations and the things, uh, the things that are interesting about them. One thing that's interesting in The Shoemaker's Holiday is the speech prefixes. Now, in, in describing what happens, I have called Eyre's wife Marjorie, and that's for a number of uh, ideological reasons which we could think about under two related headings. One the sense that having a name is one of the signifiers which denotes individuality, even though very few people have a name that isn't shared with other people. Still, we think that having a name is a marker that you're an individual. And secondly, a kind of unwillingness to characterise anyone, particularly perhaps women, solely in terms of their relation to someone else. But the text of the play has no such qualms. It calls her throughout wife. Okay, so she's called in all the speech prefixes and the stage directions, wife. That's her identity. It has the force of a proper name. 
but it's a proper name function which nods not towards individual identity, but towards a generic social type. We see quite a lot of this, I think, in plays of the period, not necessarily so much in the lines that characters speak, but in the way that they're introduced in the textual apparatus of the printed play, where we might want to identify a character by a proper name. Early modern play texts often want to identify them by a social function. That's what's important about them. Marjorie can buy lots of things, it seems, but not quite a personal identity or a name in the, main, in the way we might hope. In this, way, then, in this way, then, we might think that Decker presents us with some more contingent social forms of identity, the idea that identity is exterior and it's constructed in relation to other people rather than that it is interior and private, the moment of soliloquy that I've discussed previously about tragedy. I've got one last area for discussion today, and that's the question of authorship. Who wrote the two previous plays in this series was not actually very relevant. Kidd is identified as the author of the Spanish tragedy only retrospectively. Authorship does not seem to have been a significant part of the marketing of plays in print or on stage. Okay, people don't actually seem to have cared who wrote, uh, to a large extent, don't seem to have cared what people, uh, who wrote the plays they went to see or the plays they bought. But also, even once we attribute the play to Kidd, we don't really know anything more as a result. We don't really know anything about Kidd's life or opinions, if we think that would be relevant. And we know little about his other writings, so we can't use the attribution of authorship as a way to build up a picture of his work. We can't use it back to tell us anything about the Spanish tragedy. So the Spanish tragedy turns out to be effectively anonymous, just like Arden of Faversham. But with The Shoemaker's Holiday, of course, we're in a different world. Thomas Decker's professional writing career spanned 35 years from the end of the 16th century up to his death in 1632. He's a, so he, he, he goes from the Elizabethan period through the Jacobean period into the Caroline period as the contemporary of another long-lived writer and rival, Ben Jonson. Much of Decker's theatre work was, as was the norm for this period, collaborative. So he works alongside other authors in different models of co-writing and script preparation. He also writes a number of energetic and appealingly surreal pamphlets about contemporary London, enlivened by a crazily inventive use of metaphor and a wildly imaginative literary style. We get a sense of Decker's linguistic exuberance, which is more developed, I think, in his prose writing, in the speeches he gives to Simon Eyre, which are full of excitable bombast, like this one, uh, calling his household to attention. Where be these boys, these girls, these drabs, these scoundrels? They wallow in the fat of my bounty and lick up the crumbs of my table, yet will not rise to see my walks cleansed. Come out, you powder beef queens. What nan? What madge mumble crust? Come out, you fat midriff swag belly whore. Sweep me these kennels that the noisome stench offend not the nose of my neighbours. Despite all his labours as a writer, Decker was permanently impoverished, in and out of prison for debt throughout his long life, dying ultimately a pauper. In this, he could not be less like his hero, Simon Eyre. 
or perhaps we can begin to see the force of the shoemaker's holiday as in part an autobiographical fantasy in which riches rain down on the working man. The fantastical profitability of the cargo Simon Eyre buys from the Dutch merchant then we might see as a transformed, idealised representation of the play itself, the play as a commodity. Rather, Eyre's good fortune moves him from the sphere of production, shoemakers make things, the word playwright, which we get for the first time in this period, has its cognates in, sh in shipwright and wheelwright, right wrought, somebody who makes things. <laughs> So shoemakers and playwrights are people who make things, whereas merchants, like Air becomes, the sphere of retail, are people who make money rather than goods. Even while the shoemaker's trade is idealised under its patron saint, St Hugh, it's also implicitly belittled. It's never going to make somebody rich. There seems somehow here a kind of distorted model for a proto-capitalist theatre in which it is retailers like Henslow, who owns the theatre, or Shakespeare, a sharer or investor in the Chamberlain's Men. It's retailers, not producers like poor Thomas Decker, who profit. Next week, I'm going to talk about Middleton's play, The Revenger's Tragedy, a play in which familiar themes of status female sexuality and commodified morality come to the fore in what Jonathan Dollimore calls Black Camp. It's also a play with a more extensive performance tradition in the modern period than some I've been discussing, so I want to try and talk quite a bit uh, about theatre and performance in that lecture. I hope I'll see you then.